0: We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans and the ninth chapter, the book of Romans and the ninth chapter, and I'll be reading and preaching this morning on verses 6 through 18 of Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 18 for our sermon text this morning. I invite you to follow along as I read aloud this morning, beginning in verse 6. Here Paul writes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named And he hardens whomever he wills. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we ask now for the work of the Holy Spirit, that he would be our guide and teacher and reveal to us the truth of your word, and that he would apply it to our thinking and to our lives in such a way that we are transformed by its power and we live lives that are pleasing to you. For we ask these things this morning in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Friends, as we saw last Lord's Day, Paul had a great burden for the salvation of his brethren, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. In fact, Paul's burden was so great that he expressed a sincere and genuine willingness to be accursed and cut off from Jesus Christ if such an action would ensure that his kinsmen would be accepted by God where the very thought that his kinsman would be accursed and cut off brought great sorrow and anguish to Paul's heart, just as the thought of our kinsman being separated from God also burdens us this morning. And no doubt Paul's sorrow and anguish was caused in part by Israel's willingness, or I should say Israel's unwillingness, to see that what she enjoyed by way of privileges throughout her history had been given to her by God as a way of calling her to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. For God had sought to draw Israel to repentance and faith in Christ by means of His goodness— And yet Israel refused to see and to accept that. And I might add here in passing that this is the same way that God works among men today. In fact, we might argue that God primarily operates in the same manner today under the gospel. For through his kind providence today, God surrounds men, even hardened, unbelieving men, with clear and irrefutable evidences of his divine goodness. And in our cases today, an opportunity to hear the gospel. And these evidences are given to us to awaken us to the fact that we don't deserve them. And that God is extending to humanity through the person and the work of his son, a a gracious invitation, an undeserved invitation that no man who is unbelieving is entitled to. And the right response to God's displays of goodness to you and God's displays of goodness to me is to repent of our unbelief and our ingratitude and to plead to Jesus Christ as the one who can deliver us from unbelief and who can create within us new and grateful hearts. And if you are in a state of unbelief today, I plead with you this morning to see how profoundly ungrateful you are and how you have no right to presume on God's goodness at all For God would be completely justified if he cast you and I from him entirely. Of course, Paul had to accept the reality that Israel had provoked God in this same way. For God was just in the judgment that he'd sent upon Israel. And Israel, rather than being the envy of the world, rather than being an example of how God's people should be grateful, was now a nation to be pitied. By the way, friends, if we do take the gifts of God for granted, and if we are not thankful for them, we should not be surprised if they are taken from us. For God will not be mocked. And yet, as we come now to verses 6 through 18 of Romans chapter 9, admittedly a lengthy passage, Paul fully anticipates that some will find fault with his assessment and his analysis of Israel's lost condition. And they will offer up their own explanations, their own interpretations as to why Israel was not enjoying what God had intended for her. Because this is what lost men do, by the way, they, they make up excuses. They offer their own justifications as to why they are unwilling to repent and flee to Christ And they seek to exalt their own wisdom and their own prerogatives over God's prerogatives. And yet Paul counters their arguments here in advance. And the first argument or objection that Paul counters here, beginning in verse 6 of our text, is the claim that the fault was not Israel's, but the fault actually lied in the promise of God which some were misguided enough to suggest had faltered or failed in some manner. And yet Paul was quick to establish here, first of all, that the promise of God was not the problem. In fact, Paul states quite emphatically here, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for God's word never fails but rather the promise of God had clarified from the very beginning why some in Israel would disbelieve and why others would be among the children of God. The Word of God had clarified this. And to prove this, Paul provides an explanation as to why so many were excluded and what the promise of God to Abraham really was. For sadly, most Israelites in Paul's day were resting on the false assumption that their physical relationship to Abraham alone guaranteed that they would be counted among the offspring of God. And yet, Paul destroys this false assumption here. He reminds his readers, he reminds his opponents of who really belonged to Israel as... ...spiritual offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul does so by referring them to the history of God's people. He refers them to their own history, which they should have known quite well. And Paul emphasizes how God himself chose those who would be his spiritual offspring... ...and how God's own choice, by necessity, excluded others... Paul writes, continuing here in verses 6 and 7 For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac, your seed, they shall be called. And here Paul takes his readers back to redemptive history and to the choice that God sovereignly made between Isaac and Ishmael who were both of the physical seed of Abraham. For you'll recall the account that through scheming with his wife, Sarah, and the involvement of Hagar, they ensured that Abraham was given a son who was named Ishmael. Ishmael was born before Isaac, and Ishmael, as The son of Abraham was entitled to the privileges associated with being the firstborn. And yet we're told back in Genesis 17 that it was not Ishmael who would be taken into the covenant. It was not Ishmael who would inherit the promise, but Isaac, who was yet to be born. In fact, in a moment of weakness, Abraham had pleaded with God If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Abraham tried to solve a dilemma, he thought, by his own wisdom. But God redirected Abraham's attention to the fact that in due time, he would father a son through his wife, Sarah, and that their son Isaac would be the one through whom his seed would be called. For in rejecting Ishmael, God was clearly communicating that some who would descend from Abraham after the flesh would not belong to true Israel, nor could they be called the children of Abraham in the spiritual sense simply because they were Abraham's physical descendants. In fact, Paul tells us here in verse 8 of Romans 9 what the meaning of these events were and what we should take away from them in terms of understanding God's ways. For notice what Paul writes here in verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Brethren, this is a very wise and skillful interpretation on Paul's part. And Paul's interpretation of these historical events easily cuts through the the shallow and superficial claim of his opponents who insisted that they were the rightful recipients of God's promise, when in reality they didn't understand the promise at all, nor how it exclusively pertained to Isaac. Isaac. In fact, it's interesting to note here in verse 9 of Romans 9 that Paul reminds his opponents of what the content of God's promise to Abraham actually was. For Paul writes, For this is what the promise said. Paul is telling them plainly what it means. This is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And so the promise, as Paul saw it, as Paul explains it here quite well, was not a universal promise to save all of Abraham's descendants without exception, but it was the exclusive promise that through a specific descendant the promised seed would come. And of course the Israelites of Paul's day had failed to see this, And they put their confidence not in the promise as rightly understood, but in their own flesh. Then not only had the promise of God been upheld and not failed in the case of Isaac and Ishmael, but it had likewise not failed in the case of Jacob and Esau. So again, Paul is taking them through their own history The promise had not failed in the case of Jacob and Esau, for now here in verses 10 through 13, Paul directs our attention to how God revealed his own choice of one brother over another, despite the fact that the one who was rejected was the older brother, and the one who was chosen to receive the promise was not the firstborn. And yet what Paul stresses here as being most significant about God's choice of Jacob over Esau is the fact that it was made before any of the two sons were born. Before they were born. And to take it even further, it had nothing to do with what either son would eventually do. Nothing. We're taking us back in our minds to Genesis chapter 25. Paul writes here in Romans 9 that this same principle applied also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. They, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that the purpose of election might continue, not because of works... But because of him, namely God who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And here Paul reveals to us that the fulfillment of the promise with respect to Jacob over Esau followed God's own purposes According to divine election, as opposed to what men might expect through their own planning or their own devising. And so Paul first affirms here that what God had sovereignly decreed for these two men had not been determined by physical birthright or by any consideration of who might be entitled to certain earthly blessings before the other. Or in the case of true Israel, and in the determination of who would be a part of true Israel, physical birth would not be a factor whatsoever. And again, let me just emphasize, I know you know this, but physical birth is not a factor whatsoever today as well. In fact, Paul states here in verse 11 that when God decreed his choice between Jacob and Esau, both men were not yet conceived or born. And needless to say, this revelation of God's absolute sovereignty over who was chosen between Jacob and Esau was something that Paul's opponents needed to be reminded of. And it's something that you and I need to be reminded of, for they were neglecting to acknowledge the sovereignty of God over both men. Of course, we need to be careful not to fail to acknowledge The sovereignty of God over all men, including you and I today. The sovereignty of God over the entire process of redemption. For Paul's opponents were simply assuming that the choice between these two men had been made at or after their birth and in view of what order they had arrived. And sadly, this idea that God's purposes in salvation are dependent upon or they must fall in line with human expectations, still prevails today. This same faulty teaching and assumption still prevails today, for men often portray God today as waiting for human cooperation before he acts sovereignly in revealing the choice of men And yet the purpose of election, if it is rightly understood and rightly taught, is to acknowledge that God has the right to act sovereignly and independently and according to His own decree. And according to his decree, his choice of Jacob over Esau was not determined at or after their physical birth, nor as Paul states here in verse 11, was it based upon what works they would do, whether good or bad, because God's choice of men in salvation is not based upon what is in or what is done by the creature But God's choice of men is based on his own sovereign prerogative and the purpose of election, which revealed at the start of redemptive history and which he continues to choose men according to that same will today. In fact, Paul states here in verses 12 and 13 that God's purpose in election had already been established. You could say it was already active when the word was delivered to Rebekah. When Rebekah was told, the older shall serve the younger. For in declaring that Esau would serve Jacob, God was saying a great deal about both of them. We need to pay attention to these words. For the words that Rebekah heard not only revealed what type of men that Jacob and Esau would be spiritually. What kind of man was Jacob? Jacob was a struggling but regenerate man of the true people of Israel. And Esau was truly an unregenerate man, But a man who did know some earthly blessings in the kindness of God, not only did these words reveal what type of men they would be, but these words also revealed God's sovereign love and preference for one of them. God's sovereign love and preference for one of them and not for the other. One, Jacob not for the other Esau. In fact, Paul certainly understood these events in this way, for in explaining what Rebecca heard further, notice, notice here that Paul quotes in Romans 9.13 from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, were. The prophet Malachi, quoting the Lord God, said, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau have I hated Paul's reference to these words have startled some. Maybe they startle you this morning to hear these words spoken in this manner. Many have claimed that Paul must have misunderstood the words of Malachi by applying them to Jacob and Esau as individuals, rather than as the nations of Israel and Edom, which would later descend from these two men. For some say that it's easier to accept that God might find favor or hate a nation, whereas hating real people, and in this case, hating Esau, would be cruel. That's what some people suggest. Yet I would insist that failing to take these words, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated literally, is not only dealing loosely with the text— but it is also missing the context entirely. For the context of Malachi chapter 1 is not that salvation is applied to nations, but that salvation is applied to individuals it would not make sense to interpret the reference to Malachi in Romans 9 as anything less than insight into the mind of God in salvation as it is revealed in Scripture. And according to Scripture, God has a prerogative to set His redeeming love on some and not on others. God is free as God to elect some to salvation and to pass over others. God is not under obligation to save all In fact, it's amazing if we think about the testimony of Scripture that God saves any. So getting back to the success of God's promise in the case of Jacob and Esau, we see that God's purpose and election did not fail. God's purpose in the life of Jacob and the life of Esau unfolded precisely according to God's purpose, according to God's plan. God declared clearly that he loved Jacob, that he had a redeeming, special love for Jacob that he did not possess, for Esau. Then lastly, we see in the remaining part of our text this morning, here in verses 14 through 18, that Paul addresses another objection that tends to follow closely behind this discussion, And that is the objection that the teaching that God has the right to choose some and pass over others makes God unjust. In fact, maybe you had that thought this morning when we talked about God's love for Jacob and not for Esau. Maybe you thought God is unjust then. Paul offers the initial response to this objection here in verse 14 where he writes... What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul answers, by no means. By no means. And yet even today, we hear these kinds of objections presented to us. For in our society today, we have a far different concept of justice and injustice than the biblical world did. Since most people in our contemporary society equate the idea of justice with entitlement, they believe that they are entitled to God's unconditional love, regardless of what God's purposes in election are. In fact, you hear this commonly taught today, that God has unconditional saving love for all men, and they insist that if God's purposes in election were to exclude any, then God would be acting unjustly towards his creation, because all of creation has the right to his acceptance. And yet, in countering this objection, Paul again goes to the testimony of the Old Testament to answer it, and to the declaration that God made to Moses in Exodus 33 and verse 19. Or you'll recall in Exodus 33, Moses pleads with God on behalf of the sins and the rebellion of God's people. And Moses inquires as to God's willingness to forgive them and to bless them with his presence once again. And in God's response to Moses, God sets forth again his own sovereign prerogative to do as he pleases not what the people felt that God was obligated to do for them. Paul makes this reference to God's response in Exodus 33 here in Romans 9. Notice what Paul writes. He says, For he, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Certainly, brethren, we would be hard pressed to find a clearer statement regarding the fact that God is merciful and compassionate, right? I mean, the text does say that God will do both. He will show mercy, he will show compassion. But let's not forget that God also states that he will choose the time, he will choose the circumstances. He will choose the individuals to which he chooses to manifest both. It's his choice. It's his prerogative. And no doubt Paul wanted his opponents to look upon this declaration here in verse 15 with a new set of eyes. Maybe we need to look at this with a new set of eyes as well. And to realize that we should not presume upon the mercy and compassion of God When we are unwilling to acknowledge God's absolute sovereignty over these things, God has the prerogative. He has the right to exercise that prerogative to choose whoever he chooses then taking his argument a step further here in verse 16. Notice verse 16, Paul offers the only reasonable conclusion that can be drawn from God's words to Moses, and that is that it depends not then on human will and exertion, but on God who has mercy. For if it depended upon human will and human exertion, then there would be no need for God's mercy and compassion at all. But because our fallen wills are entirely incapable of receiving mercy and our human exertions can by no means acquire mercy, we need God desperately to show us mercy and compassion as he pleases. And this should be what we are humbly and daily seeking the mercy and compassion of God as he chooses to dispense it. Then lastly, let us notice that Paul ends this portion of our scripture text this morning by providing us with another illustration, another example from scripture, this one also from the book of Exodus, and in this case from the account of God's dealings with Pharaoh and what God said to Pharaoh Under the 11th, or excuse me, under the seventh plague of Egypt, which is recorded in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16. For Pharaoh's resistance to God was not outside of God's sovereign decree. Let me repeat that Pharaoh's resistance to God was not outside of God's sovereign decree, nor was God frustrated or perplexed as to what to do regarding Pharaoh. God not only knew what Pharaoh would do, but he preordained that response. But Pharaoh existed for God's own purpose. You hear that? Pharaoh existed for God's own purpose. For Paul refers here in verse 17 of Romans 9 to that divine word, which came to Pharaoh saying, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. For the ultimate purpose of God in election is the promotion of God's own glory, which is done through the selection of some and through the downfall, the rejection, and the passing over of others, such as in the case of Pharaoh, whose heart was never his own, Did you hear that? Whose heart was never his own, but a vessel for God to harden at will. Those are difficult words to hear for some, but it's the truth of God's word. A vessel for God to harden at will. In fact, Paul reminds us again here in verse 18 of Romans 9, That the softening of the heart through mercy, as well as the hardening of the heart for divine judgment, is God's work. It's not man's work. We, We do not soften the heart. He's also suggesting here quite clearly, not suggesting, but teaching here that God is the one who hardens the heart. Therefore, if we are looking for a treatise today on the power and the freedom of man's will against God, we're not going to find it here in Romans 9. Romans 9 is by no means a treatise on the freedom and the power of the human will. And no doubt this is why so many churches skip over Romans chapter 9 in their pulpit ministries altogether. In fact, I cannot tell you the number of times that people have shared with me their experiences in churches where a pastor or a teacher will be teaching through Romans and get to Romans 9 and say, Well, we're going to move on because this matter is controversial or this matter is upsetting. And therefore, we'll move on. Maybe we'll just move on beyond Romans 10 and 11 as well and get to the practical stuff in Romans 12. And yet, this is a critical chapter to understand. This is a critical chapter to live in light of. We need to recognize the wisdom and comfort that is found in this chapter. We need to humbly accept it. We need to submit to it. For the purpose of divine election has been established. The purpose of a divine election will stand. The purpose of divine election will continue. For no man, no woman, can hinder what God decrees. No man or woman can hinder what God decrees. And Pharaoh was clearly a powerful illustration of that truth. May God give us grace today to receive this word. May God give us grace today to see that all who were in Israel, physical Israel, were not of true Israel. But only those who are chosen by God. Only those who are given the spirit of God are the true children of Abraham. May we be among their number by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, by the compassion of God. And may we also be humbled that if we are among that number, it is by divine grace only. None of us can stand here this morning and say that we deserve to be in the fold. None of us today can stand and say that we were wiser than any other, that we were more deserving of someone else. No, God chose us as those upon whom he would have mercy. God chose us as those upon whom he would have compassion. And how thankful we should be. How thankful we should be for God's grace. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we ask now that you will help us to receive humbly the truth of your word today and that we would not only Be willing to hear it and to meditate on it, but to have the Word of God take root in our lives. We need to understand your absolute sovereignty over all things, including salvation. Not just over all things between the nations, not just over all providential circumstances and happenings, but even in the selection of men and women for salvation, you are sovereign. You do your will. You have mercy upon those whom you choose to have mercy. You have compassion upon those who you choose to have compassion, and you also choose those whom you would harden and those you would pass over. May these truths be real to us today, and may we, in all these things, in all considerations of these truths, be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ, where your love and compassion is so magnificently and perfectly displayed If we truly desire the mercy and compassion that you display today, we will find it in your son. Draw us to your son and then give us the eyes to behold his beauty. Then give us the grace to believe and to repent. Help us in all these things for your own glory, for the promotion of your will and your glory today in this church and in our lives. Father, work mightily, we pray. In Jesus' blessed name, amen.